Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a discussion with President Jefferson about American character. Jefferson believed that the American character would be unique, that it would be the best in the history of the world, based on agrarianism, based on our distance from the havoc of the old world, based on public education, and based on the resourcefulness that we needed to show because there were no outside experts to do all the things for us that we might otherwise want to have been done by experts. While Adams felt that without a strong American character, the, quote, strongest chords of our Constitution would be broken as a whale goes through a net. John Adams and Jefferson were dear friends. They disagreed about many things. But one thing they agreed upon was that this experiment would only work if we had unique character. So join us this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour for American Character. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. President, I wanted to talk to you about the threat of the use of American power, threatening other nations with the use of American power in order to promote peace or further American ideals. Do you have any thoughts on this, sir? Sometimes it's necessary, even if you don't mean it. So I can think of two instances from my time. First, uh, during the period of negotiations that led to the Louisiana Purchase, when I felt that Spain and France trading the Louisiana Territory back and forth were in danger of closing the Mississippi River to American traffic, which they periodically did for short periods of time, I wrote a letter to my friend uh, Samuel Dupont, who had uh, deep ties in, in the French ministry, and in it I said that the moment that uh, Napoleon takes possession of the city of New Orleans will marry us to the British fleet forever. And, and there was an implied threat there. I knew that he would he would pass the, that letter on to the French ministry. I needed to keep the Mississippi River open. If France had, had done what Napoleon intended, which was to build a new French empire in the lower Mississippi Valley with headquarters in New Orleans, I would definitely have had to make peace with Great Britain, which I did not want to do. The British Navy could overawe anything that Napoleon could ever put into the ocean. And so this was uh, this was a message that I was trying to get to the, the, the principal ministry in France that they must not attempt to uh, reoccupy the lower Mississippi and that if they kept closing the river to American commerce, which I regarded as a violation of international law, that this would force me to make an alliance with Britain and with the British Navy supporting us. Uh, there's nothing that Napoleon could possibly do to hang on to the lower Mississippi. So there's a, a case of, of careful diplomatic saber-rattling. It wasn't a public statement. It was a private statement, but I knew that in writing this letter to DuPont that it would get to the right people, and in fact, it had the right effect. Mr. President, I've always thought of you as a pacifist. Uh, your unwillingness to build up the military and to rely on a m militia. Uh, did other governments take you seriously? Yes. I am a pacifist, more or less. I said peace is my passion, and I think that we should not fight wars unless they are the very last melancholy 
response to a failure of every practical means of conciliation and negotiation. But there are times uh, when you must fight. And as you know, I fought a war against the pirates of the North African states during the course of my first term as president. I did not wish to, but there are times when civilization has no choice but to stand up to barbarism and savagery. But I knew, for example, that I could rattle the saber, to use your term, with respect to Spain almost at any time. I knew that I could do this for two reasons. First of all, Spain was a declining power, and so they were no longer really capable of waging a significant war against us, especially a war in North America, which was so far from the uh, the Iberian Peninsula. But secondly, I knew that Spain in a sense, use that kind of rhetoric, that they talked in that kind of wildly militaristic language and, and that I could get their attention by pushing back to a certain degree using that same rhetoric. I did not intend to go to war with Spain. I would have if necessary, but I thought that by speaking of Spain with some militaristic contempt that I could probably make some breakthroughs in the diplomatic sphere. And meanwhile, this would get uh, me some respect in the international arena. People realized that we were, under certain conditions, willing to protect our national interests through military action. I, I dearly hope that that would never come, but I wasn't altogether afraid of it, if necessary. Finally, Mr. President, what you're saying is it's all right for a president to take this sort of warlike stance when necessary. It depends, of course. I don't speak for your own situation, but there are times when the president must send a belligerent message to make it clear to another power that there are circumstances under which he would send our military into action, and that often has the effect of bringing down rather than raising international tensions. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay Jenkinson, and seated across from me now is President Thomas Jefferson. Good to see you, Mr. President. Good to see you, citizen. Mr. President, you, you look a bit weary today that you, you may be overworking yourself. Well, certainly not, sir. It's just uh, that time of the year when the weather is beautiful and we're riding our horses and supervising the crop rotation system and the first peas are coming to table and we plant new uh, garden crops every week and, there, of course, there are fences to repair and cattle to uh, to supervise and maintain. And all of this, coupled with my life as a reader and a writer of letters and a scientist and so on, all of these things... Um, uh, take some energy. You're a busy man, but you're feeling well, sir. Yes, sir. Good to hear that. And uh, congratulations on your, your fine garden. Thank you very much. I was wondering, sir, if we might have a conversation this week about American character. Um, what makes America, America? How it's developed? What you saw during your time? We are a people who are separated by 3,000 miles from Europe. 
We are not indigenous. We came across the ocean, mostly from England, to a certain degree from France and Ireland. But the great bulk of the American people come from the British Isles. We came as fully mature citizens. We were citizens of the British Empire. Uh, The British Constitution is a good one. The British have gone through this long and agonizing reform from the Magna Carta through the British Bill of Rights were the inheritors of all of that. And and the Britain uh, of my time was a literate nation. The the citizens of Britain were were highly evolved, highly intelligent people and enterprising. And for that matter, the people who came to the New World were in some ways the most enterprising of the British because they were restless or discontented or they were dreamers. And they had the the boldness of spirit to get into leaky wooden vessels and cross an immense ocean to start life again in a new place. So the United States has advantages in that we were born mature. Most nations have to rise slowly out of a prolonged period of barbarism until they finally achieve something like a social compact. That wasn't necessary for us. We We arrived fully prepared for the the business of self-government. And so our character was, was established by these, these dynamics of the, the gumption and restlessness that brought people from the old world to the new. As you might expect, most people stayed behind. I took the time to open a dictionary, sir. I'm sure you'd appreciate that. And look up the actual definition of character. And it, it came back as the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual or a combination of traits and qualities distinguishing the individual nature of a person or thing. Would you agree with that? Yes. And I think the fact of the new world is what made our character. So I've said what I think we brought, that restlessness, that courage, that enterprise, uh, that willingness to leave behind all of the comforts of life and to move to a, a, an environment that had none of those comforts and, and to create them out of, the, out of the ground itself. Then if you look at, at what skills were needed for us to, to make happiness uh, or at least comfort in the new world, we, we couldn't call in outside entities to do much for us. We had to be self-reliant. We had to make our own fences we had to plow our own fields. We had to build our own houses. We had to pave our own streets. Uh, we had to build government. We had to create government uh, out of the grassroots. We had to be uh, we had to be resourceful in ways that you would not have to be if you lived in London or Paris or Edinburgh. We were left to our own devices, and so we had to be creative. And pragmatic, this was not yet a time for us to be engaged in the higher flights of theology and philosophy and, and, and literary theory. There was so much to be done, trees to be cut, fields to be grubbed, land that had never been plowed to be plowed for the first time, uh, granaries to be built, dams, small dams to be placed on the river so that we could create mills to grind our, our wheat and corn our transportation system had to be built out of nothing, out of game trails that might have existed for deer or for buffalo or for wolves, for that matter. And so we were, we were thrown upon our own resources in a way that few people have ever been. This is one of the 
one of the challenges of being a, a colonist, but particularly a challenge of being a colonist in a new world, in a, in a virgin landscape without any of what you would call an infrastructure. So this made us two things. First, immensely resourceful because we had no choice. If we'd had a choice, we might have, to use your term, outsourced a great deal of our of our daily existence, but without that uh, possibility thrown onto our own capacities for hard work and creative thought, we did all of these things ourselves. And secondly, with that comes confidence, with that ability to solve the practical problems of life in a way that is within the resource base of the of the small world around you, comes a confidence, an independence of spirit. Uh, a contempt for expertise, uh, almost, perhaps even an anti-intellectualism to a certain degree. And so this spirit of fundamental confidence that the American people have, unlike I think any other people in the world, comes from our errand in the wilderness. If we had come to a, a world that was already completely uh, developed and had simply been absorbed into a place like Amsterdam or Madrid or Rome, that would be a very different American experience. But become, because we came to a place that had never known a city, there had never been a paved road, there had never been a bridge, uh, there had never been a plowed field. You know, Indians had some agriculture, but it was largely scratched out in the bottomlands of rivers. Uh, all of these, these things that we did and had to do as new Americans uh, gave us a sense of our own capacity that I think shaped once and for all the American character. You're talking a great deal about the American character during your time, Mr. President, and I think that's an excellent place to start. Um, George Washington, after the revolution, wrote to a friend saying, we have now a goodly field before us and I have no wish superior to that of seeing it judiciously cultivated that every man, especially those who have labored to prepare it, may reap a fruitful harvest. I think he was speaking about America and the need to judiciously cultivate American character. Would you agree with that? American character and American land. So he's also saying in Europe, if you are a farmer, you are probably not the owner of that farm. You probably are a farm laborer. There's probably a squire or an aristocrat or a duke. We have the power, as no other people has had, for every individual to be his own farmer, to be independent of the feudal land tenure system and the social hierarchies of Europe. So this is unique. Another way of saying it is that we were born with a middle class. France was locked into a, a hierarchical world. The term that was used in British society is subordination, where there's the king and then there are certain aristocrats, and below them certain landed squires, and below them a group of small peasant farmers and serfs and laborers and so on. This rigid social hierarchy where you're born into a social class, and unless something almost miraculous happens in the course of your life, you are locked into that class as are your children and your children's children. In this our happy republic, we never had that. And so there was a chance for Americans to be independent 
and and to share a rough equality of circumstances that was unprecedented in the history of the entire earth. That's how important this was. And so that's also, to use the other sense of, of, the, of the letter you're quoting, the chance for us to, to develop an independency and self-reliance of character because that is intimately tied to the earth and to the, and to the economic and social circumstances of the American Republic. So we could create people who were capable of self-government. You know, it's not clear to me that the French peasants or French laborers in Paris are, are capable of self-government in the short term. It, when the French Revolution came, I said it might take decades, perhaps even centuries, to bring the French people up enough so that they can really um, shoulder the burden and the opportunity of, of self-government. Most peoples in the world live in decidedly subordinate social and economic conditions, and they don't know any other because that's the only reality in their world. But here, because of the abundance of our land and the excellence of our constitutional settlement, the average person is like a king or an aristocrat in Europe. And so this inevitably will create a different sort of character from people who, who spend their lives cringing and bowing and, top, and, and tipping their hat to people that are regarded as their social betters. Uh, we're really talking about two things here, Mr. President. I think uh, we're talking about a national character and we're talking about individual citizens' characters. Yes, there's a national character of the United States that comes from the aggregate of our citizens, and it also comes from the the resource circumstances of the United States. You know, Britain can barely feed itself. Uh, it's hard for Britain to to generate enough food to feed all of the people who happen to live there. They don't have the naval stores we have. They don't have the the timber to create ships. They don't have the coal. Uh, resources and the lead resources and the gold resources and the river resources that we have. So part of it is circumstance that's not quite accidental, but certainly has to do with the exigencies of geography. And then there's individual character that's part and parcel of this larger national character that you're speaking about. Mr. President, we need to take a short break. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about what I think you regard as a surprise the formation of political parties and factions in America. I know it disturbed you, and I, I would like to talk to you about that and get your opinion on how it, how it affected American character. I wouldn't have expected that ever to come, but yes, I would be happy to speak about it. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, we're speaking about American character with President Jefferson. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson has agreed to have a discussion with us this week about American character. And Mr. President, when we took our break, we were talking about American character as a nation and American character as it applied to individual citizens. I, I wanted to ask you about political parties. You wrote in uh, 1789, I am not a Federalist because I have never submitted the whole system of my opinions to the creed of any party. You ended that line with, if I could go to heaven only with a party, I would not go there at all. Is that about right? Yes. So this was 1789, so shortly after our Constitution was written, and as you know, the Founding Fathers, of which I was not one, designed our new Constitution without parties in mind. They believed that we could be effectively a nonpartisan republic, and we all felt that, that, that the party spirit corrupts the process because one party argues for certain types of policies and the opposition party objects to them, not because they are inherently objectionable, but because it's important to distinguish itself from the original party and then the situations are reversed and the policies might be identical but are inhabited by different parties and it all becomes nonsense and silly and paralyzing and it creates uh, not only faction but it, it, it creates a kind of a diseased body politic and it, it builds enmities and, and rivalries and people engage in character assassination and all of this is generated really for no good reason that that most decisions that a nation or a state must make can be made on a nonpartisan, scientific, and rational basis. And so we as, as, as creators of the American system actually hoped and believed that we would be the world's first nonpartisan state, I suppose something that you might have seen in Sir Thomas More's Utopia or Bacon's New Atlantis or Plato's Republic, but we actually felt that that we had a very good chance of, of, of building a nonpartisan culture and were shocked, therefore, and disheartened in the most profound way when we discovered that even here in our Arcadian utopia, factionalism and party started to rear their heads. I must respond to your statement, sir, starting with you saying I was not a founding father. I know you're going to argue this endlessly with me, but you may not have been there in body, but certainly, sir, you were there in spirit. Well, perhaps I sent Mr. Madison uh, scores of books on the history of constitutions and the history of government, and he read those and, and, and commonplaced them. He took extensive uh, digests and notes and extracts from those books. So I was, in a way, the the librarian or the bibliographer. Oh, sir, let's not go down that dark hole of an argument. Uh, you were the man who wrote the famous 35 words. Y your spirit was there. I, I would suggest the best uh, line for this part of the discussion is to leave it at that and move on. Well, let me say this much more. By founding fathers, I mean the 55 actual gentlemen who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787 and produced the Constitution of the United States, if by founding fathers you mean something larger, like the, the generation of active men and some women who declared independence from Britain, who helped to form state constitutions and who formed not one but two national constitutions, the Articles of Confederation followed by the Constitution of 1787 and then governed 
the country for the first 25 or 30 years, then yes, I probably would be numbered amongst that broader sense of the founding fathers. But in terms of the Constitution of 1787, if those are the founding fathers with capital Fs, uh, I was in Europe at the time. Point taken and noted, sir. I do think it's fair for me to say that uh, I know you well enough that if I say that you were a believer in liberty of conscience, that that would be accurate. Um, and I believe it was you who said that the basis of all other freedom is that liberty of conscience. No question there. And I think that of all of the founders, the two of us who believe that most passionately were James Madison and myself. And there were others, Thomas Paine, and John Adams and others. But when you're talking about this area, about the freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of intellect, freedom of thought, freedom of, of, of access to information, what I would call the illimitable freedom of the human mind, the two who were most deeply committed to that, and this is, of course, a list that includes Dr. Franklin too, but the two were Mr. Madison and I, and that's one reason we became such close friends. Uh, we, we, he, before he met me, he was already a champion of freedom of, of religion and freedom of conscience in Virginia, and I was too. I wrote the famous um, Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, and then Madison and I had come together as friends in 1775, and the collaboration that existed between us for the rest of our long lives was based upon this, this deep commitment to freedom of conscience. And it may seem obvious in your time that this would be the case, but in my time, these were very radical thoughts. The, most people of the, say, six million Americans who were citizens of the United States in 1800, most of them believed that without religion, society would probably disintegrate into madness and mobocracy and anarchy, and they believed that the only way to ensure that religion was the, the restraining glue that, that kept order in a free society would be to have a state-sponsored religion, that an official church in Virginia, the Anglican Church, in Massachusetts, the Congregational Church, in other states, uh, Presbyterianism, and, and so on. But, but most Americans believed not only that religion was essential, and by the way, I don't, good, useful, interesting, but not essential— and most Americans in my time believed that a state church was probably the most likely path to maintain a religious uh, constraint on what John Adams, for example, called the lusts and passions of mankind. So my, my sense that religion is not essential to order, not essential to the, uh, to the enlightenment of mankind dovetailed with that of Mr. Madison. We agreed with this. Now, both of us had re private religious views, but they are neither here nor there. What, what we meant was that if you think that this society cannot exist without universal religion and indeed a state-sponsored religion, then Mr. Madison and I fundamentally disagree with you. 
to go back to Mr. Adams' words about the passion involved, uh, you know, we've established that Americans as citizens have a great deal of freedom and liberty. I go back to the political factions and parties. I w- would like to have you comment on this. Or, I mean, I know it disturbed you greatly, and I, I wonder what this nation would be like now had we not expended so much energy fighting among ourselves. I doubt that it was something that you or others of your time expected. It turns out there are several different ways to look at this. So take one. The southern states, to a certain degree, Maryland, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, and then, of course, later, Kentucky and and Tennessee, were agrarian. That was, they were farmer states, often plantation states, and therefore slave states. But, But the South was agrarian. The North, say Massachusetts and Connecticut and New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Delaware, uh, New York, these were more commercial states. The shipping industry was located in the area around Boston and, and, and New York and Philadelphia. Manufacturing, such as it existed in my time, was largely in the North. The North had family farms, but they were hard scrabble, barely sufficient farms because the soils and the climate are not particularly conducive to agriculture in much of the North. The North was Calvinist largely in its religious derivations, whereas the South was mostly Anglican, and the difference between the Episcopalian settlement and the Calvinist settlement on a whole range of questions is really extraordinary. So one thing we discovered was that The United States was big enough in its geographic um, diffusion and and regional enough in the the different climates and and systems of economy that those climates supported that there was an inevitable uh, divide between northern interests and southern interests. And the flashpoint of this became slavery, but it also involved fisheries and tariffs and taxation policy and foreign policy with respect to Britain and and France and so on. So there's that. And that turns out to be insurmountable. I mean, you, you can agree to get along and you can work things out in the Senate and in the House of Representatives and you can create a whole series of compromises. But fundamentally, we have a north and we have a south. You could add we have middle states that are sort of leaning to a certain degree in both directions, but that created an inevitability, I won't say of party, but of a separation of interests at different times. And those things, they cannot ultimately be erased. In a certain sense, geography is destiny in this regard. And then we discovered that there was also something of a distinction between East and West, that there were the 13 original states sort of leaning towards Europe, and now the new western states of Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee, and those states were really more tied to the Mississippi River than they were to the Atlantic Ocean. They were far from the intellectual capital of the United States, Philadelphia. They were, going back to our discussion of character, thrown on their own resources in a much bigger way than people would be, say, in New York or in um, even in Charlottesville or Richmond. And so... You have that growing divide, and that's really something the Federalists feared. The Federalists in in New England understood the South. They didn't like it very much, but they understood it. But suddenly the Western states were coming in, and the Western states 
either represented a new anti-federalist force or they aligned with the uh, agrarian southern states, wh whichever way you perceive it, it was not good news for New England mercantilism. And so there's the problem of what the West represented as a potential energy that would pull apart the unity of the American constitutional settlement. So that's the those are the natural things. Those are those are things that are born in nature and in some ways they're beyond human artifice. But then on the other hand, you have factionalism, just that people it turns out and I hated to admit this, but I came to admit it in the course of my life that there appears to be a factional element in the in human nature, that that people like to disagree, and that if one group says that our policy should be to make the best possible economic compromises we can with England, there will be a second group that says, "No, that's nonsense. That's the death of civilization. That's the end of humanity. If we follow that path, it's perdition and reenslavement." No, the only answer is whatever it turns out to be, in this case, say we should lean more towards the European continent and to France, or we should be radically isolationist, or we should change the official language of the United States to something other than English. Whatever it is, if there's a group of people that says this is the way the world works and this is how we should coordinate it, our, our public policy with respect to that, I, I learned over time that it's almost zoological, that there's there's almost inevitably – a rival way of seeing things that coalesces around a different set of leaders and a different set of principles, or at least different policies, and those two entities wound up colliding. And 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 I said once in a letter about this to John Taylor of Caroline, if if this didn't exist, if everyone were a Republican and there were no Federalists, then the problem would be that the the Republicans would soon fissure, and there would be different camps or different factions, different wings of the Republican Party. So maybe we're better off having the Federalists because it's easy to dislike them. We do think their policies are nonsense. They they help unify the opposition. If there were no Federalist Party, the opposition or the, the new orthodoxy would soon start to have its own internal quarrels and, and, and disputes. And so maybe we're better off having the Federalists to hate, to put it in a kind of crude way, than to be thrown on a system where we are so far in the ascendancy that we, we fall out against each other. Mr. President, you've commented on the character of American citizens. I'd like you to comment on the character of America as a nation. A former president in 2015 said that America was the most warlike country on earth. doesn't seem like that can be true. Part of it is that the Europeans have never left us alone. I said once, I I would hope we would be a fourth or fifth ranked nation like China so that the world would leave us alone. We can afford to be our own fortress. We have a whole continent to operate on. And the moat between us and the havoc of the old world is fully 3,000 miles in width. And so my dream was that we would be left alone and the world would know of our existence and admire what we were doing here, but essentially ignore us and go about their incessant wars over land and religious doctrine and the mistresses of kings and the vanity of aristocrats and all the things that have 
have bedeviled humanity from the beginning, as long as they leave us alone, I'm content for them to, uh, to tear each other's throats if that's what they must do. Mr. President, I know you had your disagreements with Mr. Adams, and uh, I think you thought he was a bit too earthy um, and uh, a bit pessimistic as to the nature of man. He spoke about fears of what could happen to America if there was no check on, uh, well, bad character. He said this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He went on to say avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Oh my, that's a, a very dark and silly thing for Adams to have said. I disagree with that fundamentally. I do agree that character matters in America more than it would matter in France or Britain or, or Portugal or Spain, because when you govern yourselves, that involves in the profoundest self, self government, the actual government of my own individual self in order to be capable of the wider uh, reach of, of, of a social self-government. So I, I do understand that, that character matters, education matters. I think that Adams is simply wrong. I think he's too pessimistic. I think as long as we stay rooted in the soil, as long as the majority of us are farmers, as long as we diffuse the population as evenly as we can and don't crowd people into urban places where there's social unrest and disease uh, and, and a harder economy to try to distribute things well. I think as long as, as, as we educate our young people liberally to, the, to their capacity at public expense and as long as there's some Western domain where the discontented can go to take up new land and, and to work out their roughnesses on the frontier, I think that we'll be the most peaceful, the most uh, benevolent, the best governed, the most independent, the most virtuous uh, citizens who ever lived on Earth. So I, I simply can't share Adam's pessimism, but I insist upon all of those um, those habits of agrarianism and, and public education and so on if, if we're going to do this right. Mr. Jefferson, I thank you so much for the conversation and, sir, for your optimism. Uh, you are most welcome, sir. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be speaking with the gentleman who portrays President Thomas Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson, and now, your weekly conversation with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. Good to see you, sir. Uh, My friend David Swenson, it is a pleasure to see you, and I must tell you, I just came back from Newport News, Virginia, and Norfolk, and Virginia Beach, and the Outer Banks, and I bring you greetings from a whole range of people, not least of whom was Pat Brodowski, the Oh, uh, you got gardener. to see Pat Brodowski. Pat, Pat and I had a chance to oh, drive from, from Newport News down to the Outer Banks together oh, and back again, and we had the greatest time. She is a she's just a marvelous person, and she everyone mentioned you. Oh, and I they, they of course they talked to me about gardening, and I and I'm delighted. Pat has sent me some seeds. I've started my tomatoes. I have more than a hundred tomato shoots growing in my kitchen. I've got all my seeds ready, and Pat has sent me these wonderful. Monticello seeds, plus I have Mandan, Hidatsa, and Ericura seeds that I've gathered from Newtown and from the uh, the reservation, the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, and other sources. But I said to everyone, you know, I'm the I'm the guy who talks about it, but David Swenson is the, is the better gardener. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're no, the no. real a, thing. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm an amateur, but I will tell you that uh, after speaking with uh, with Pat and doing uh, some research, I I have included Hidatsa shields beans in my garden. Where did you get them? Uh, From Kevin Kirkey at the uh, Fort Lewis and Clark Foundation. So he was able to get you some authentic seeds. Well, they're a couple years old, but I have no doubt they'll germinate. Even conservative estimates say those seeds last for six years. But I am nothing but an amateur gardener who really enjoys his time with his hands in the dirt. Well, me too. And actually, it's it's more than... Someone asked me today... um, in an email, what is it about you and gardens? <laughs> Why? And so I thought about it and I said, well, part of it is that I believe that Jefferson is right, uh, that w- when we put our hands on the soil, that that is somehow a sacrament, that there is almost a, a, a redeeming something that happens there. But then I said, I also do it because my grandparents were agrarians in Minnesota, dairy farmers, and my grandmother had a huge garden, and I admire them in a way. In a way, I admire them more than I admired my own parents, whom I love, and I want to be part of that heritage. That's what created the upper Midwest. That's certainly what created my family lineage, and of course, as Jefferson says, gardening is the oldest profession. It's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. I mean, humans must eat. And so it's only very, very, very recently, David, that people have been able to buy food. In Jefferson's time, you could buy some food, but essentially you were growing food or getting it at the farmer's market. But you you certainly weren't going to a grocery store and buying it off shelves. So that's a, that's a second reason. And the third is that I think Jefferson is right. It goes back to what we've been talking about today, about character. So to the extent that we are independent, that we can do things, that we can grow food, that if we had to, we could build a a shack. If we had to, we could change the oil or even change the rings in the engine of our car. If we had to, we could replumb our house. If we had to, we could um, uh, run a little irrigation ditch from a creek down into our fields. To the extent that we can do those things, Jefferson says, we're free 
we're truly independent, not just in some political abstract sense, but we're truly independent. We're capable of living outside the infrastructure of, of supply and demand. And it gives us a confidence, a sense of ourselves uh, that is redeeming, that, that really creates character. And, and Jefferson's view, and I think he's right. I, I really enjoyed listening to him today, if that doesn't sound too weird. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, but when I talk, I'm sort of just letting it come out. I know you are, yes. And so when I hear him, I think, you know, he's right, that, that that independence of spirit. I know, the, I know as I talk about my friends who are ranchers and farmers, and they have some of this. They still have some of it, even in the 21st century. And that, that gumption, that, that capacity of self-reliance of, you know what, you may have to rewire your own barn. And, and, and the tactile experience of using your hands to create something. You know, not to get too thick with all of this, but we live in a society where it's really so much of our our uh, our social fabric is tied up in instant gratification, and I'm I'm talking about uh, cell phones, uh, instant information, and all of these things. It's a different kind of satisfaction that one gets from gardening, and gardening by no means is the only way. You know, playing a musical instrument, uh, doing pottery. Uh, I'm forgetting what could be a very, oh, wood, very long woodworking list. And, yeah. and, and uh, dancing. Yeah. Uh, making, making your own music, certainly. So it really kind of does tie into Jefferson and American character. I was a little disappointed he wasn't harder on my generation. Well, I will be a little bit in the essay for today, but, but Jefferson was an optimist. And in his view was, you can't be an American and not be an optimist because look at us. Jefferson's view was, you, you need to be an optimist when you look at the resource base and the light population and the, and the fecundity of America. You know, we, we've drawn down our natural resources. We've degraded our lakes and rivers they were all pristine as if the creation had happened the day before Columbus came or the day before Jamestown colony was begun in Virginia. Before we leave uh, gardening, I'm, I must say that after the Pat Bradowski show, she brought up this unique tool that neither of us this had heard about. Broad the, fork. The broad fork. And a number of uh, responses have come in. The first one we got was from a Matthew Farnsworth who said, uh, not a question, but a recommendation for a source for the Broad Fork, and he sent you to a place called gullandforge.com. These are not cheap implements, but they look quite well made. Uh, I'm really hoping you do get one so you can tell me how it works. I have ordered one. I can't wait to get it because I had these. So I had three hours driving from Newport News to the Outer Banks with Pat, the longest conversation we've ever had a chance to have. A wonderful, rich conversation with the chief gardener at Monticello, and and we she we stopped to look at mustard fields, and she she told me what every crop in every direction, and she told me she's a weaver and she's a spinner and she makes her own clothes, and she was wearing a beautiful cotton work shirt, which she dyed with her own dyes, and really, she's one of those people wow. that you know her talents are just mighty in every direction, and uh -huh. she's funny and she's smart and she and she cares deeply about. The gardens at Monticello in a way that goes way beyond Jefferson, and so we had three hours out and three hours back, and she and I and I mentioned this broad fork, and oh my, I got the full <laughs> account of how this you know the clay gets impacted at Monticello, and if you use this broad fork, it it aerates the ground, and this is so much better than a spade or a tiller. And oh my, don't talk to me about a tiller because 
that's the internal combustion engine and that's not how things are done. And so I thought, okay, I'll just order one. And so free shipping, it should be here anytime. And I, I'm going to till the entire Jefferson Garden, what I call the Square Nine Garden, with this broad fork, and you are welcome to borrow it. Oh, I like, would like. I would have bought you actually, one, but I, I'm a They're a little man. pricey. Yeah, I would like to come up and uh, and uh, witness that if if you'd allow it. But anyway, we're getting caught back up to in gardening character, here. Back yeah. to character. So, so I mean, here's here's what I think is so important about this is that Jefferson is the author of American exceptionalism. He's not the only author, but he's its principal articulator, and that is the notion that we are simply different. We're not British, we're not French, we're not we're not European. We we're a new a new stock, not a new species, but a new stock of human beings that comes from the fact that the timid ones stayed behind and the bold ones came across the ocean and the restless ones and the ones who had had trouble with the law and the ones who had enterprise or, or were so firmly committed to religious liberty that they couldn't even live with the, the, the Anglican political and religious settlement of the, of, the, of the 17th century. So part of it is that. Then you have what Jefferson said, the, the fact that we were sort of thrown on our own devices, that you, he, he wrote a couple of letters, including one to his daughter Martha, in which he said the American motto has to be nil desperandum. Nothing is to be despaired of here because we are equal to any challenge that ever comes our way because we're America. We have no you – can't, you can't call somebody to have them come fix your plumbing. You can't call somebody to come have them build your house. You just have to do it. And so this nil desperandum – Latin for nothing is to be despaired of is is Jefferson's motto for America. And that that dovetails with the Frederick Jackson Turner thesis, uh, which he wrote in 1893, the significance of the frontier in American history, that we're constantly carving out new communities out of of the grass. Of course, you you have to factor out Native Americans whenever you have this conversation, and, and you and I don't like to factor them out, but that's what Jefferson is talking about. And it certainly did make kind of gumption based anything is possible. There are no social barriers that we're not willing to kick over if we really want to. That still exists for America. And Jefferson saw that as part of it, but then he wanted to take that incredible thing, David, that that raw kind of Andrew Jackson, Daniel Boone American, and now give him Latin and civics and geopolitics and geography and he wanted he wanted to refine this person into a a really gumptious, but well educated person. I, I I believe I hear Mr. Adams in the corner chuckling, saying, "How'd that work out, Mr. Jefferson?" The experiment's not over yet. We we were closer in 1970 than we are today. That's the tragedy of our times. Before we go to your essay this week, um, I, I wanted to bring up a letter from Cheryl Gunnels who uh, wrote about your book, Becoming Jefferson's People, which may be an answer for uh, some of the questions we're looking at this week. It does. Uh, She said your book, Becoming Jefferson's People, was just nine to ten years too early. We need it now. How about a paperback printing for those of us who would like to start a book club discussion group around everything you have to say in this book? This is truly the one single book I have read that might set the American Republic on the right reinventing path. I'll purchase 25 paperbacks to start. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, and Where's Cheryl from? Uh, I, do, I don't think it's included in this. Well, she's I, so generous and I so appreciate it. I do think Becoming Jefferson's People 
is the right book. It's a it's a it's sort of a self help book. How can you be more Jeffersonian? It turns out it, it's not that hard. You can be more Jeffersonian relatively easily. It's really about habits, and that, by the way, is what, in a sense, this week's essay is about too, David. But I do think the book needs to come back in print. Meanwhile, before we reprint, by becoming a member of the 1776 Club, you have access to an audio version of Becoming Jefferson's People. Right. Go to jeffersonhour.com, and you can find all that out. No, the fact is that this book needs to get back in print. It's the book, I think, that's of, of the nine or ten books that I've written that's actually the most important. And it has Jefferson has changed my life. I know he's changed your life, David, and and he's changed the lives of people. I meet them, and it's so gratifying. I, I can't tell you how much fun I had in Newport News. I met a woman who portrays Martha Wales Jefferson Skelton. Oh my! She's gonna uh, she's gonna come on the show. Oh great! Her name is Nicole Brown. Great. Um, Pat Brodowski was fantastic. I met all these people who are longtime listeners. There was a dinner with Daniel Lewis. Jeez, at, I'm a little jealous. It sounds like it was fun. We did this. We did this wonderful dinner in the Outer Banks, um, at, at Coastal Provisions. Daniel Lewis's marvelous oyster. Uh, bar restaurant in, uh, in in the northern area of the Outer Banks. Uh, I've done dinners with with Daniel there before. Old friends from the Lewis and Clark trips were there. It was it was it was absolutely fantastic. You know me, I don't get out much, but there have been rumblings in my household about how it might be kind of fun to go visit Monticello again. You should go. And and... I'm, I'm getting agreement with. Uh, the, the person who is such a good trip planner that I live with. So. And, and Pat Brodowski will not only um, show you the gardens, but she'll put you on the end of a broad fork and you can, yeah. you can I think test I'd, that tilling all by yourself. I think I'd yourself. remain anonymous on that one. Anyway, um, thanks for a great conversation this week, Clay. And now it is time for this week's Jefferson Watch. When Jefferson envisioned the American character, he saw a kind of idealized agrarian republican. Someone who lived quietly on the land, achieved self-sufficiency, participated in local self-government without ego or ambition, read books, believed in liberty so firmly that he would flare up at any sign of corruption. Jefferson saw a sturdy American who took charge of his life, who worked hard to reduce his dependence on any person, entity, or institution outside of his modest farm. Like most of the rest of the Founding Fathers, Jefferson worried that luxury, too much material addiction, would transform us from lovers of liberty to lovers of security, order, prosperity, and stuff. And here we are. Can you be a republic when 80% of Americans have widescreen televisions? On any given day, you have X hours of discretionary time. After adding in sleep, personal grooming, food preparation, and consumption, work, most of us have between three and seven hours per day that we can, in some sense, call our own. What you do with those hours tells you who you are. It's Matthew 6.21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure is a patch of peas, or a woodworking shop, or reading your way through the complete works of Dostoevsky, you might be a Jeffersonian. If your treasure is a home theater in which you binge-watch NCIS or The Real Housewives of New Jersey, you're probably not a Jeffersonian. I repeat, we have only so many discretionary hours, and how we use them tells us who we are. 
The fact is, the American people have gotten sloppy and complacent. We are awash in more stuff, more distraction, more mindless entertainment, more ritualized violence, more free-floating rhetoric than any people who ever lived on Earth. We are overfed physically and underfed metaphysically. I do not speak necessarily to you who are listening at this instance and perhaps feeling a little squirmy or annoyed, but on average, today's American is toxic, some more, some less, but our capacity to live in a Jeffersonian republic depends on our taking ourselves more seriously than we now do. Watch half an hour of MSNBC followed by half an hour of Fox, or just follow the national debates about health care, foreign policy, immigration, or Islamic terrorism for an hour, and ask yourself, is this still a republic? The devotees of the Tea Party, now the Freedom Caucus, rightly hunger to return us to some past glory they have extrapolated from the give me liberty or give me death and the live free or die mythology of American history, but it is not clear that they want to do the hard and disciplined work of living like people who really want to be in a republic. The fallacy of our times is that if we could only reform government, we'd restore America. But it has nothing in the end to do with government. The only way we are going to reclaim anything like Jefferson's Republic is to begin by looking in the mirror. Another great reformer said, take up your bed and walk. I'm Clay Jenkinson. We'll see you next week for another exciting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 701- 575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. ¶¶